we're now going to hear from God's word. Um, and we're continuing today in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, which is on page 1191 in the Red- Reddish Bibles. So 1 Timothy, chapter 1, starting today at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This is God's word. Sarah, thank you. Let's, um, let me lead us in prayer as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, here are glorious truths. Paul's autobiography is a wonder for us to consider and think on. Uh, and we pray that we would uh, join him in giving you thanks and praise as the King Eternal. But Father, help us know rightly how to cherish this so that we don't lose it, so that we'll be willing to fight for this glorious gospel. We pray in his name. Amen. You may have to be of a certain vintage to to particularly cherish the 1964 classic My Fair Lady, Audrey Hepburn at her finest, uh, with... um, Sexy Rex Harrison, as he was known. I, I leave that to you. Um, but um, in its time, did you, 1964, it was, the, it was the most expensive film ever made. Um, I don't know why, uh, but it was. But uh, if you know the classic, it is all Pygmalion story. Um, it begins, uh, uh, Henry Higgins, this sort of professor of phonetics, uh, an unlikely hero, um, meets with Colonel Pickering uh, in the dining room with the, no, the, um, you know, but they meet these, these two pompous Englishmen uh, meet talking and Henry Higgins is, I could make anyone, pass anyone off as a lord or lady and they happen to be in, um, what do you call it, Trafalgar Square and they come across Eliza Doolittle um, and uh, so Henry Higgins says, even that creature in the gutter I could pass off as royalty, and so she looks at him, hear what you say? Um, you, know, you know, Audrey Hepburn putting on this marvellous Cockney accent, what you say about me? And um, Henry Higgins says, oh yes, give me six months and I'll make a duchess 
of this draggle-tailed gutter snipe. It's a terrific phrase, isn't it? An insult I encourage you all to use this week. A draggle-tailed gutter snipe. And of course he's saying, look, I'm so good, I'm so impressive at training in elocution. I can take this creature from the gutter and pass her off as aristocracy, nobility. And um, he does, sort of. Uh, The plot, and he's, I mean, he's a deeply unpleasant man, isn't he? But he sort of loses his heart, and there's redemption narratives all over the place. Um, And still a good tune, uh, if you haven't seen it for a long time. But of course, he says, look, I'm so impressive, I can take that from the gutter and present her as royalty. And there's a sense in our passage today where Paul says, I am God's exhibit A of grace. He took me from being a murderer of Christians, the worst of sinners, and not only saved me, but elevated me to be his spokesman to the Gentiles. He is apostle to the Gentiles. I was like the most horrific person you could ever meet. And now, I've written a decent chunk of the New Testament, and people will be reading my letters for centuries to come. Go figure. But God is so extraordinary. His grace, that amazing, he could take me from there to there. And so he presents himself, in one sense, as exhibit A of God's mercy and grace. And it's glorious, and it causes him to burst out in praise. Verse 17, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But why does he include that here? I mean, it's, it's lovely. It's delightful. But why here? Well, we've begun to look then at this letter of 1 Timothy, which occupies for a couple of months. And on the one hand, it is just a delightful letter because it celebrates the fact that God is Savior. That is the distinctive flavor of the letter. So chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior. Or uh, chapter 2, verse 3, this is to praise good and pleases God, our Savior. Chapter 4, verse 10, he is the Savior of all people. God is a Savior. That's what we want to talk about, says Paul. So the downside of that is, will you stop those false teachers? (laughs) who are distracting from his message of salvation and raise up good leaders in order that this message goes out. That is 1 Timothy. God is a savior and that's what people need to know. So stop those that distract from that and raise up those who are going to pass on that message. And so we saw last time that uh, uh, Paul had left his favorite colleague, Timothy, in his favorite church, Ephesus, uh, with a clear command. Chapter 1, verse 3. I'm commanding you, Stop or command certain people not to teach false doctrines anymore. And we looked at the the, the nature of the false teaching in in verses 4 to 11. There's an obsession with genealogies in the Old Testament uh, law that somehow justified immoral behavior. And it always seems to be that way, that false living will drive false teaching. You, be, you want to live in a certain way, so you, te- you change what the Bible teaches. And that was the case then. Now, you could easily jump from chapter 1, verse 11, stop this false teaching, uh, to verse 18. Timothy, I'm commanding you, stop this false teaching. But in between, we get in verses 12 to 17 this little bit of autobiography 
from Paul. And the stress here is, twice you get it, I was shown mercy, verse 13. Verse 16, I was shown mercy. And Paul here, he's not just reminiscing. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, remember, God strengthened me in order to to preach this message. He'll strengthen you. And Timothy, this message of mercy is just so wonderful. And what it achieves has eternal consequences. Timothy, you've got to fight to protect this message. Nothing saves but this message. Timothy, remember, cherish, delight in, be passionate about this gospel of mercy and grace and fight those who want to change it. That's why it's here. So we'll look at uh, Paul's um, bit of autobiography, uh, and then there'll be three little implications. Two overlapping paragraphs, they go a bit like this. He was shown mercy and strengthened to serve, verses 12 to 14. Then he was shown mercy as an example of patience, verses 15 to 16, and three little things will flow from that. These two paragraphs, they overlap, slightly different flavor. Let's work through them. Verse 12 then, verses 12 to 14. He was shown mercy and strengthened to serve. So the emphasis on this first little paragraph, uh, Paul is giving thanks. Why? Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. On Timothy, he can strengthen you too, right? That's what I'm reminding you. And um, he gave me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, persecuted, violent man. Um, Not that God looked upon Paul when he was a Pharisee and overseeing the stoning of Christians to death, going, oh, there's a man with commitment. I like his sort of complete and sort of nature. I I see he has the right Myers-Briggs sort of skills. I consider him trustworthy. No, but rather, I think more, um, Paul, the, the Lord took Paul and made him, rendered him trustworthy in choosing him, I think, is the sense of it. But the focus is what he was like. Verse 13, though once I was a, three things, blasphemer, persecutor, violent man. I was pretty horrific. Although I did act in ignorance and unbelief, uh, Paul seems to be making the biblical distinction, you read it numerous times in the Old Testament, between willful, deliberate sin and unwitting sin. So let me give you one example. Numbers 15, you can look it up later. The whole, pa- the whole chapter has it really. But verse 29, there is one law for him who does something unintentionally, but the person who sins intentionally with a high hand, that person should be cut off. That sort of distinction. There, there is a difference between those who do something willfully and um, out of ignorance. But the point is that he was not beyond the Lord's mercy. Verse 13, you see, even though I was blasphemer, persecutor, violent. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Quite a contrast. I was blasphemer, persecutor, violent man. So God showed me, verse 14, grace and faith and love. 
The point is, you and I are meant to dwell upon how bad Paul was so that we see the, the wonder of God's grace. <laughs> um, this grace that was poured out abundantly. It's, it's a nonsense word Paul uses in the Greek. It's, it's sort of mega abundant, hyper mega abundantly. He sort of puts together lots of words and makes up a new one that isn't really a word to get this sense of just overwhelming grace that was poured out on him. Or um, uh, not all showers are equal, are they? So most people, I assume, hope, have a shower um, uh, in the morning or at least once a day. Um, most, so, but your morning shower, it's what you do every morning and you sort of, uh, you get in them uh, and you go through your ablutions. But, it, you know, it's just what you do every day. It's not particularly exciting, is it? It just gets you going or maybe not. But um, it's just what you do. There are some showers which are great. You know, you've been camping rough for a few days deliberately, and, um, and then, you know, then you have a shower. Oh, that's a good one. Or you've got really, really cold, you know, that's a good one. Or you stay in a nice hotel, and rather than, you know, this sort of shower, it's got a, this, you know, jets at all angles. Whoa, that's a shower. That's fantastic. Or... Just occasionally, I can think of maybe a couple of times uh, in, in my life, gone for a little trek, normally overseas, and you're in a river, and then the, the, whoever you're with says, oh, look, just around the corner, and there's a, a waterfall. Not a massive thing, not Niagara Falls, but, you know, a decent waterfall. And you can wander up in the river, and you stand underneath the waterfall. It's <laughs> um, and it's you know, a warm climate. So that is a pleasant waterfall hammering down on you, and it's sort of overwhelming, invigorating. Um, that's a shower. Just the water, the volume pouring down on you. That, says Paul, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me hyper abundantly. A grace that just keeps coming and coming and coming like a waterfall that doesn't stop. It's just overwhelming. You've never known anything like it. That's Paul's experience of God's grace. And so he gives thanks. He says, I was shown mercy and I was strengthened to serve the Lord. And then similarly in verses 15 to 16, uh, he gives us more detail. He was shown mercy as an example of patience. So verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, a trustworthy saying, um, five times in the, what's known as the pastoral epistles, the letters, last few letters that Paul writes to colleagues, so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, five times you get a trustworthy saying. They're later on in Paul's life, later on in his ministry, and the assumption from most is that these are things that get said in all the churches, maybe as a sort of call and response. Someone, you know, the preacher would say, why did Christ Jesus come? And everyone would reply, he came into the world to save sinners. That sort of thing that takes place. We don't really do it uh, in the UK. Um, this big GAFCON conference last month, whenever anyone was up the front and felt he was losing the room or she was losing the room, so they sort of, Praise the Lord! And the whole room would go, hallelujah! Um, and he's sort of, okay, everyone's back with me. And then, then they'd go off peace every so often and go, hallelujah! Praise the Lord, said the room. 
And um, we're work those who are with me on PTS on a Thursday night, we're working on it, and, you know, we're, we're, it, it's going mediocre, let's be honest. That sort of thing. Why did Christ Jesus come? He came into the world to save sinners. Because if you know nothing else, know that. It's a central truth of the faith. That's why he came. His teaching is wonderful. His actions glorious. He came fundamentally to save sinners. And Paul can say, of whom I'm the worst, present tense. Not, I was the worst back then. Although he does believe that. 1 Corinthians 15, he says something similar. I'm, I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church. I'm not even worthy to be with James and John and Peter and the others. So he does believe he was worse. But here... I am the worst. That's strange. I, the worst of sinners, present tense. So Paul was able to hold together in his thinking two truths. One, um, I'm forgiven. In fact, more than just forgiven, I'm, I'm justified by the work of Jesus. He took my sin. I receive his perfection, his righteousness. So God could not love me any more than he does. I can hold that truth together, says Paul, and rejoice in that, and know I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace. My track record was absolutely horrific, but even now, as an apostle, I'm still sinful. I never forget that I've always been undeserving of the wonderful, overflowing, hyperabundant, poured out grace of God. I'm both greatly loved, but a sinner. But here's the thing we're meant to take away from Paul being so bad. Verse 16, I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Why did God save me, says Paul? Because I'm the worst person that walked the planet. <laughs> I was a blasphemer, persecutor, violent man. I killed those that Jesus loved. I killed those that Jesus gave his life to save. And yet he saved me, the worst can you imagine, um, he seems to be doing a lot of globetrotting at the moment, uh, uh, President Zelensky, uh, The Hague, and visiting the Pope, and um, where is he this morning, Germany. Um, but can you imagine, in, in one of his, another one of Zelensky's surprise visits, he pops up on telly, and, um, oh, he's in Moscow. Oh, and he's gone into the Kremlin. That's a bit risky, you'd have thought. And a little while later, he emerges from the Kremlin, with his arm around Vladimir Putin and says, this man tried to kill me <laughs> and he's invaded my country, but I've forgiven him. And in fact, I've asked him to take on the job of um, rebuilding Ukraine again after the war and the war is now over. And everyone thinks, well, what's happened there? I mean, that is the least likely 
outcome you can possibly imagine. That he, what, right, Zelensky, but this guy tried to kill you. He's killed thousands of your countrymen. And you're putting your arm around him and saying, why don't you take charge now of rebuilding this country? Why would you trust him? Oh, because I've forgiven him and he's a changed man. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Not after his lifetime. He's a despicable man. No, but that's, that's what I can do, says Zelensky. Well, I don't think any of us expect that to happen. Of course, it's absurdly unlikely. But Paul is saying, that is what happened to me. God took someone who hated him, hated the followers of Jesus Christ, killed the followers of Jesus Christ and didn't just say I forgive you but actually you're now responsible for the expansion of my kingdom across the world wow ridiculous but that's what the mercy of God is like Paul is the example par excellence that verse 15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners there's a sense in which Jesus never did a more godlike thing than saving Paul. Because it so demonstrates his kindness, his mercy, his grace, and how powerful it is to change someone's life. Timothy, that gospel is worth protecting. Nothing else makes the difference like that message does. Now, I wonder straight away, you can see uh, what, obviously, that must mean for you and for me. Uh, a couple of things before we move on. For one, uh, that must mean you and I, you can't out God's grace. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. If the worst of sinners can be forgiven and raised up to serve the Lord, so can you. And so can I. You can never out sin, God's grace. Every Christian remains sinful until the day they die. Probably not the worst of sinners. But the Lord Jesus saved the worst of sinners. Have mercy upon the worst of sinners. He can upon you. I think it's been a few times over the years, someone asked for a conversation, or it's come up in, in some context, not, not often, not often at all, Two, a few times, and they say, um, I've done something I consider unforgivable. I look back upon um, that betrayal of my family. I look back upon that abortion that I had. I look back upon that violence I committed. And I think it's unforgivable. Well, there's always issues going on there, and it's, I'm not saying it's a quick conversation to have. But in the end, the grace of God is hyperabundant. The Lord Jesus forgave the worst of sinners. He can forgive you. Oh, says someone, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Well, get over it. You are a horrific sinner. You just got to own that. The reason you can't forgive yourself is you don't want to be that person who does that nasty thing, but you are but the grace of God can still bring you forgiveness. 
There's an old Wesley hymn. We don't sing it. I don't know the tune. Probably goes to many other tunes, doesn't it? Like most of his songs. But oh, Jesus, full of pardoning grace, more full of grace than I have sinned. Weary of wandering from my God is the title. It's wonderfully true. Oh, Jesus, full of pardoning grace, more full of grace than I have sinned. So it's got to be one thing, isn't it, we take from this. You and I can't out-sin God's grace. Um, the, the other, before we move on, is obviously no one else is beyond the reach of God's grace. I think probably most of us have someone in our heads that we think, well, they will never become a Christian. Whatever it may be, the Muslim colleague, we think, well, they'll never become a Christian. They, they, they're so devout in their faith. The delightful lesbian couple that live next door, well, they'll never become Christians, not given uh, what they believe. Or, or, or the stubborn 80-year-old parent who will never talk about things. And we think, well, they'll never become a Christian. It's not true. Paul did. If you'd observed him, Act 7, at the death of Stephen overseeing a Christian being stoned to death. And you'd said, oh, you know, what gets you up in the morning? Killing Christians. Oh, right, see you in church next week then. You would not have thought, here is a man who's going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. But he did. You and I are not beyond the mercy ever of God. There is no one who is beyond the mercy, beyond the reach of the grace, the hyperabundant grace of Jesus Christ. So he was shown mercy, Paul was shown mercy as an example of the patience of God. For you and me, we'd know it for ourselves. We'd know it as we go out into the world. No one is beyond that reach. Three little things, um, uh, and then we're done. The three little implications Paul draws. Uh, the first is obvious, verse 17, give glory to this king. Verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God has given me eternal life. He is the eternal king. Paul, he can't speak of this glorious mercy of God without bursting into song, without bursting into prayer. And it's a striking contrast, isn't it, from what we looked at um, last time in, in 1 Timothy. Do you remember the myths and controversies that the false teachers were peddling, verse 4, or the myths and endless genealogies produced controversy. That's what you get. You go for speculative, fringy sort of issues and controversy. You teach the gospel of mercy and grace. It leads to an outburst of praise. Timothy, hold on to this. Nothing will make people praise God like this gospel that saves and then secondly, Timothy, uh, know God's strength in the fight. Timothy, God strengthen me, he'll strengthen you too, verse 18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. What's that mean? And these prophecies made about Timothy. You compare it, another reference in, in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 1. It seems that the point where Timothy was commissioned, ordained, there was, you know, there was a, we're absolutely convinced, Timothy, you're the man, 
you're going to face adversity, there's going to be opposition, God will strengthen you. That was a word that was said to him at the moment uh, of his consecration, ordination, when he was set apart uh, as, a, as a minister of the gospel. He'd been warned that there was a battle that he had to fight, a battle to protect this glorious message of mercy and grace. Don't let it just become a bland message of self-improvement, Timothy. Fight for this gospel. Some have rejected it. Verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they've rejected it. Timothy, don't be like them. Your verse 19, to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Remember this last time, chapter 1, verse 5, the false teachers had given up, departed from a pure heart and a good conscience. Timothy, don't be like them. You've got to hold on to faith and a good conscience. We thought last time it so important <laughs> uh, to do that. You mustn't go against what you know is right. But these false teachers... They've given up on faith and a good conscience and have shipwrecked the faith. So they've trashed their own lives and they've shipwrecked the faith because they've distorted the teaching. There's all sorts of military metaphors going on here. I think, Timothy, be a good soldier of Jesus and hold on to the faith for yourself. And Timothy, be a good sailor of Jesus and steer the ship of the gospel safely away from shipwreck. All sorts of, it wasn't an Air Force, I guess, in those days. Otherwise, he may have thrown that one in as well. But be a good soldier, be a good sailor, be both of those things. Hymenaeus and Alexander, I want to come back to them next time. But they've been, well, it's a curious phrase, handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What does that even mean? I, I think we'll, we'll come back to this next time, but briefly. I think you compare it with Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 5, to be handed over to Satan means you're put outside the church. Hymenaeus and Alexander were told, you're not welcome until you repent, until you've realized this is serious. And when you've learned not to blaspheme the name of Jesus, then you can come back in. But until, this is so important, we just say you can't come until you've repented. But no, there's a way back because Paul was, verse 13, a blasphemer. And the mercy of God reached him, the worst of sinners. So there's still time for Hymenaeus and Alexander to be taught not to blaspheme. The mercy of God can reach them too. There's a chance. But Timothy, I've got to be honest with you. When you stand up in the church in Ephesus and remind them that two popular members, Hymenaeus and Alexander, what about their wives? What about their families? No, none of them can come in. Oh, but that's, that's really, yeah, I know. Timothy, when you stand up and say that that's not true and that they're not welcome, you're not going to enjoy that. But you've got to fight, Timothy. Because lastly... You've got to hold on to mercy. You have to know that this fight is worthwhile. You have to know that this gospel of mercy that can reach the worst of sinners, of hyperabundant grace that can transform anyone, you have to know that that is a glorious message 
that brings praise to the Lord, that gives people eternal life. You have to know it matters or you won't bother. But Timothy, there is, there is nothing like this. So fight. Fight for this sensational message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Nothing transforms like it. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we thank you for this little vignette, this little autobiography we get of Paul. Not because he just wants to reminisce, but because he wants to strengthen Timothy. He wants to strengthen us. A reminder for those who may just take your mercy and grace for granted. That it is an extraordinary thing that you can transform even the worst of sinners into one who loves you and serves you. So, Father, would we with the Apostle Paul give praise to you, the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever to be to your name. Would we know that this gospel is magnificent and therefore when we need to contend for it, fight for it, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.